Thank you, Mama. Thank you. All right. Amen. Amen. Um, so I'm going to do good. I did good on time last time. I told them that I, I'm, I'm not preaching. I'm preaching something else, but everything ties in. All right. Just everything always ties in. Amen. Uh, I have been in the book. Nehemiah has just been on my heart for a while. And I preached about a year ago on gatekeepers, being gatekeepers. And ever since then, I keep every now just Nehemiah, Nehemiah. And, and I actually, a few weeks ago, um, when I was teaching children's church, the message was Nehemiah, and it was just like, okay, I just got to go get, like really, really get into Nehemiah. And Nehemiah and I, have we been hanging around. He is becoming my homeboy. And um, I'm just blown away by this book and so in love with the Word of God. And just there's so many things. Like, Kenan, I told Kenan, he's like, what is, I've never seen you work so hard on a message. Like, I just have so much in me, like so much stuff. I like, I feel, I told first service, I feel like a soda bottle that's been shaken. And if you take the lid off, I'm just going to explode all over you guys. So um, I just, I had to decide, God, what do I share? Like, I want to share so much. And, and I literally, I prayed and it was my gratitude yesterday that he is so faithful because it just, it was so much. I couldn't get it down. Does that make sense? And he, he, the Holy Spirit came in and just said, okay, this. And I just, my prayer was, God, I want it to be you. I don't want it to be just knowledge that I've got. I really, really want it to be you and what you want the church to hear, to edify the church. And, and so he was faithful. So we are going to be looking in Nehemiah and I'm promise at the end, we are going to tie it into this book because they came together so beautifully for me. And, um, so if you are in your word, I like to read from my word and get into it, but, um, I'm going to pick up in Nehemiah one, um, to start us off in late autumn in the month of Kislev in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes reign. I was at the fortress of Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked him about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So when he arrives, when he receives this news, Nehemiah is in a very prestigious job. He is the cupbearer to the king of Persia at this time, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes, who many of you will know as the husband of Esther. We do not know with certainty whether this is Esther's son or just a stepson, but we do know that she had an impact in his life. So when this news comes to Nehemiah, he is learning that Jerusalem has been left exposed. At this point in history, Zerubbabel in 538 BC had returned with the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem under King Cyrus, and he rebuilt the temple. Then after him comes Ezra, who's a contemporary of Nehemiah, and he returned in 458 BC, and he restored temple worship, which tells me within those 90 years, you could have, uh, you could have a temple, but not have worship in the temple. So uh, that's a really scary thought to have that you can have a church, but not have worship in a church. So he came back to restore the worship within the temple. But the thing that was left to do, the only thing left to do was to fortify the city. Everybody say fortify. The time to fortify the city. And, and Nehemiah does some things that I just love about Nehemiah right off the start. The first thing that I just admire about him is he doesn't pass the buck. When he gets this news, he could have easily said, oh, that really stinks for Jerusalem and went back to pouring his wine. He could have continued with his life and his lifestyle because he was in the citadel of Susa. He was basically vacationing with the king. And he could have just said, you know what? That's great information, but I don't want to do anything about it. Sometimes we don't want to know because knowing requires responsibility. So when he asked, he asked because he really wanted to know. And he took responsibility. He immediately responded to what was happening in Jerusalem because even though he was physically separated, he was not spiritually disconnected. He understood that he would always be connected to Jerusalem. Though he had never stepped foot there, though he was not born there, though he had grown up in exile, he, he could have probably considered himself more of a, a Persian than a Jew. He understood that his nationality and his ethnicity trumped his location and he was tied to Jerusalem. His eyes were on Jerusalem. 
Guys, Jerusalem is the focal point. It has been, it always will be. It is the focal point, and he got that. What I loved about him, instead of curling up in the fetal position, woe is me, this terrible news has happened, um, getting on, you know, going and just sharing this like gossip, he immediately prays. In Nehemiah 1, he goes into prayer. His immediate and first response was prayer, not just a little wimpy prayer. It was a prayer that was packed full with the knowledge of God. First thing he did was repent. He repented for himself. He repented for his household. He repented for the generations. He repented before he requested. The problem with the church today is we request, and if we're lucky, we repent. You cannot make a request until you first repent. You need to learn this concept that we as the body of Christ have a lot of repenting to do. We are flawed. We are not the perfect bride yet. We, we still have some spots and we definitely have some wrinkles that need being ironed out. And he immediately turned to prayer and he began to pray. And then he began to remind God of his promises that are yes and amen. He said, this is what you promised Moses. And he began to speak back to God. This is what you promised, knowing that God's word does not return void. So he began to have this conversation and he prayed. And he says, day and night, Lord, listen to me. He didn't just give a wimpy prayer and a one-time prayer. This is like the Bible says, he prayed without ceasing. And he prayed unto God. And then he asked the God, finally, he asked God, basically work on the king's heart. Work on his heart. Work on his heart. Work on his heart. We're so concerned about who is in office. How about we just start praying, work on his heart. Work on his heart. Work on his heart. So he immediately, after he prays, prays, he doesn't have, I love that he didn't have a jerk reaction, a knee-jerk reaction, and just bust into the throne room. I got this news. I got to do something immediately. In our culture, we are such an immediate culture. We want our food fast. We want to lose weight fast. We want the pill that will make everything faster. All right? We are fast, fast, fast. I love that he waited upon the Lord. Because when he got this news till the time he went and talked to the king, it was four months. Four months of not just sitting by idly. Four months of not binge watching Netflix. Four months of not just figuring out how they're going to rearrange their room feng shui. Four months of prayer. Four months of prayer. Four months of prayer. Four months of prayer and seeking God. And I believe God was in a preparation mode. He was getting all the pieces aligned in that time. God's word tells us that he who waits upon the Lord will renew their strength and they will mount up on wings of an eagle. They will soar. And God was preparing because he was approaching our Artaxerxes. And you really have to understand what happened in Ezra to understand why this was such a, such a pinnacle point. Because in Ezra, Artaxerxes was the one who halted the building of the wall. He got news and he stopped it. So now he has to go back to the king and the same king that stopped it, he has to have the boldness to go before him and say, can we restart what you stopped? Then in Nehemiah 1, there's a queen, doesn't give her name, sitting next to him. Some historians believe that it was Esther, that Esther was sitting there. Could be, which to me shines such amazing light. Was God getting her there? Was she away? somewhere else and God needed time to get that queen there who understood the plight of the Jews, who understood who, who, who the Jews were and understood the importance of rebuilding this wall. Was he waiting so that she could turn to Artaxerxes who had already made this decree and leaned over and said, um, you might want to say yes to this. Could it be? I might ask her when I get there. I might have, were you there? Were you there? I just got to know, were you there? I don't know that, but I know my God was there. I know my God was all up in that. And he was arranging things. Why? Because he was willing to wait. He was willing to wait. And in that time when he goes to ask, what I love 
is Nehemiah was just coming for a yes to the permission to build. But not only did he give him permission, he gave him provision. He said, I'm going to give you the timber. And then he gave him protection. And in that protection, he put a military around him. Let me tell you what the word of God, it is the provision and the protection and the promises of God. So he went to fulfill a promise to rebuild that wall. He gave him everything he needed exceedingly and abundantly above all Nehemiah could have ever asked or think. And he gave him a house to live in because God says he will give you homes you didn't even build. He provided in every feasible way. What else I love about Nehemiah is when he got there, he didn't rush in because we've already learned he's a man who waits. But he was a man who was silent and reflective. He didn't come in boastful. I'm here to rebuild the wall. I have been called by King Araxerxes of the great empire of Persia to rebuild this wall. He came in. And for three days, he said nothing. And he says, I didn't tell anybody what God had put on my heart. We are so quick to share. We are so quick. And, my, and let's be honest, half the time it's to boast in ourselves and not the Lord. We are so quick to share what God has called us to. Well, the Lord has called me to do this and that. And we don't quiet and we don't sit and we don't listen. But he took that time to quietly and he went and in his wisdom, he had heard the wall was down, but this is his first time seeing. Seeing is different from hearing. And he, ha he takes the time to, to ride around on a donkey to assess the damage. And it was so bad at one point, the donkey couldn't even get through the rubble. So now he's really seeing like what he got himself into. So he, wa he walked in wisdom. He wasn't boastful. He wasn't prideful. He was a humble servant of the Lord who came to do a great task. But the moment he tells the plans God has put on his heart to accomplish, the enemy rises up. We're going to get to him. We're going to get to Sambalot because you can't understand Nehemiah without understanding his adversary, Sambalot. And I feel the condition of the church, at least in America, is reminiscent of Jerusalem. There are some gaps in our walls. There, have, there are some gates that have been burned down and we are exposed and dare I say, we are disgrace. There was a time when all the churches would disagree on was how to worship. Do you raise your hand? Do you not raise your hand? Do you dance? I remember having a conversation with my Baptist, my Baptist grandma telling me that, that Carmen, if you remember who Carmen was for the 80s, that he was of the devil because he danced. And if you know me and you know my kids, we are dancers. And I said, Grandma, David danced in his BVDs before the Lord. So we had that conversation. Do you dance? Yes, this girl does. I dance before the Lord. Do we argue about speaking in tongues and not speaking in tongues? We debate on when to take communion, when not to take communion. We, de we debate on baptism. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? Is it, or is it an outward expression? Should you be sprinkled or dunked? We argue over those things. Worship. Little, little things. Really, in the scheme of things, little things. But it breaks my heart to the point of actual tears. Can we have this conversation right in the middle of the pandemic. And I remember just going to the shower and crying when he told me this, because he's a lot more up to date on, on things like, cause he, he gets on all these pastors things and he, and he, he, he was sharing with me something that the churches are now arguing whether or not it is sin. We have reached a time in history that the church is arguing over what is and what is not sin. I'm going to tell you and make it very clear for you right now. One, this church, if you are looking for a church to pacify sin, this is not the church. Because you and I do not define sin. God defined it. But by his grace and his mercy, he provided a savior to save us from our sins. Only the blood of Jesus gets rid of sin. Not a culture, not a law, not a mandate, not a movement. It took a blood-stained cross. His death was messy. His, his death was ugly. His death was gruesome. His death was troublesome. His death was heart-wrenching. His death 
was gut-wrenching because you want to know why? Our sin is ugly. Our sin is messy. Our sin is troublesome. Our sin is heart-wrenching. Your sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay, which is why he paid the price. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I saw this last night right before I went to bed, and I said, Holy Spirit, you are so on it. The great German pastor and theologian, martyr and spy, was asked in 1943, how is it possible for the church to sit back and let Hitler seize absolute power and then all the destruction? His firm answer, it was the teaching of cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. We live in a time and culture that not only teaches cheap grace, but we're beginning to praise it. We can't understand the degree of our sin if we will never, if we don't understand the degree of our sin, we will never understand the degree of his love and his mercy and the cost of the cross. We can't, you and I can't get rid of sin. If we could, we wouldn't need a savior. But now we have pastors and denominations condoning abortion and manipulating the word of God to justify this sin. And yes, I'm here to say that this church and I will declare the word of God, it is a sin. It might be a political debate. It might be a personal debate. It is not a spiritual one. You and I did not create life. We do not have the right to take life. The fact that the church is divided on this, on whether it is sin or not, is a gap in our wall, and it is a disgrace. We are in a season where sexual perversion has entered the church, and churches are redefining what sexual sin is to adapt to the culture. We have pastors who are knowingly cheating on their wives, and to pacify that sin, the church is rewarding her with prizes and, and cars, and he's still in a pulpit. We have a problem. We are more concerned with political correctness rather than being spiritually correct. It's a gap in our wall. It is exposing us, and it is a disgrace. We have made Jesus into a hippie who just promotes love and brings no correction like he's handing out flowers in an airport. Jesus was never moved by tolerance. He was moved by compassion. Please understand there is a huge difference. His compassion drew him to the sinner. His compassion healed the rejected like the woman with the issue of blood. His compassion touched the untouchable when he approached the leopard. His compassion led him to dine with the despised when he ate at the table with tax collectors. But don't you be fooled. He did not tolerate sin because his holiness said over and over again, sin no more. He did not tolerate sin. If you don't believe me, ask Sodom and Gomorrah. If you don't believe me, ask the days of Noah. If you don't wake up and realize that we are now sitting in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and in the days of Noah, that his judgment is going to come. He is not going to tolerate this much longer. The perversion and the sickness and the sinful that is running rampant in the church, mind you. He will not let his bride be defiled. He is coming back for a bride without spot or blemish. He is not coming back for a whore. I'm here to tell you, he is coming back for a pure church. He is coming back for a church that is right and righteous. And only by the blood of Jesus, only by the blood of Jesus are we made right. I'm sorry. But God is telling us to wake up, 
the church has become, in many respects, a disgrace. disgrace. But I wonder if here, amongst these believers, if we have some Nehemiahs in the house whose hearts will break, who will pray and repent, and who will begin the process to rebuild the gaps and the gates that we have left open. A spirit of Nehemiah is in direct contrast to the spirit of Sambalot. Spirit of Sambalot very simply is a spirit of distraction. So let's look at what he was distracted by. He was the governor of Samaria, which means he was politically distracted because he understood a fortified Jerusalem was a threat. He was a Hornite, which meant that he was from a town that strategically was stationed between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. So he understood a fortified Jerusalem was an economic threat. He was a Jew by practice. He, pract he was a practicing Jew, and we know this because his daughter married the grandson of the high priest. That marriage would have never happened if he was not a practicing Jew. But here's the problem. His name, his name, and this just blew me in eight, means may sin give him life. Sambalot's name meant may sin give him life. His position gave him life. His status gave him life. His economic standing gave him life. His political stance gave him life. His faith did not give him life. And he was threatened by Nehemiah whose life and whose essence and being was surely grounded in the things of God. And he was staunchly put against somebody he should have been. Because he should have been building with Nehemiah, not against him. He was a distraction. So what can we learn from Nehemiah? As I said before, church, Nehemiah prayed. We better adopt that again. Prayer isn't something we do to accomplish the works in the church. Prayer is the church. We need to get back to prayer. We need to get back to prayer. We need to get back to prayer. I think in our American um, culture, we think prayer is like pulling into uh, uh, the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and ordering. Well, Lord, I need some peace today, and I'll take a cup of joy, and I, I need you to fix my kid, and my, my, my child is struggling in school, and I need you to, I need you to, well, I'll take a side of sweet relief with that. That is not prayer, because prayer without repentance is not going to work. We need to repent and pray. Repent. God, we repent as the body of Christ for the disgrace we have made of your name by not honoring your statutes and your commandments and living according to the word. We repent for being politically correct. We repent for not standing firm upon your word. When are we going to repent like Nehemiah? When are we going to pray like Nehemiah prayed? Day and night. I'm too busy. I got an aerobics class. Well, we don't do aerobics. We got a yoga class. That was so 1980s. Woo! We got, I got yoga. My kids got baseball. I got I to gotta binge watch some TV. I'm, I gotta, I'm, in, I'm getting my master's. I don't got time for prayer. You want the answers? Nehemiah. We also need to plan like Nehemiah. We can't go through this thing haphazardly, like flying by the seat of our pants, pretty woman style, all right? We, we, we need a plan. You need a plan. We need a plan. We already have a plan. This church isn't shutting down. We have a plan. We have a plan. We have a plan. What I loved about Nehemiah is he, when he surveyed that wall, he surveyed it and got a plan together. 
and he had them all building together. He didn't just focus on one area, like let's fix this bad area, then we'll move over here. They were all working in unison. So it says that the wall came up together halfway. There was no place weaker than the other. They built together. They built together. If we want to see change in the kingdom of God, we need to stop having the church of God arguing with the Kojic church and the Kojic church arguing with the free Methodist church. We need to start building together. We need to start building together. He used all different backgrounds. There was no job too little or nobody too, too grown or too small. They had the one group had their daughters building on the wall. I love that part. Said their daughters were out there building with him. You had the high priest who could have easily said that's beneath me. The high priest was building. You had temple servants building. You had goldsmiths building. You had perfumers, which would have been like me out there in my high heels and my perfume being like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but give me a hammer. I'll do something when there was nothing above or beneath him. They all came out together to execute this plan that God had placed in his heart. He, had, he made sure when news came, came that Sanballat was not just going to throw insults anymore. Now he was taking action. And he were going to attack. He said, from here on out, this is the plan. He always had a plan. I love that. It was like the A-team. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> so I went over a lot of kids' heads. You guys didn't get it. That's all right. All right. <laughs> so he said, Okay. We're not cowering. He goes, you get a hammer in one hand, you get a sword in the other, and you get to work. He says, when you hammer, you hammer. If you need to fight, you... He goes, and better yet, I'm going to add some trumpets so that if any, you don't do it alone. So if your section of the wall gets attacked, the trumpet is going to blow and we are all running over and we got your back. They didn't do it alone because he had a plan. He taught them how to guard. What does the word say about guarding? First Timothy 6.20 says, to guard what God has entrusted you. He's entrusted you with those beautiful babies. Guard them. He's entrusted you with a gift and talent. Guard them. That gift and talent isn't for the world. That gift and talent is to glorify the Lord. Guard it. He's given you a spouse. Guard them in prayer. He is everything he's entrusted to you is to be guarded. It is not to be left open for the enemy to come, steal, kill, and destroy. You better guard it. Proverbs 4.23, pastor preached an entire series on this, so I'm not going in depth because I can't remotely touch the way he touched on this. But to guard your heart, your heart is a gate. That is your biggest gatekeeper. You need to guard that. You guard it by what you watch, what you listen to, what you taste, what you do. Those five senses, those are gates that protect your heart. Guard your heart. That's all I'm going to say there. Proverbs 4.13, guard his instruction. This is a big one because we're not guarding it. We're letting the world come in and tell us what is sin and what is not sin. We're letting the world come in and tell us what we can do and what we cannot do. We are not guarding the word of God, standing on his precepts, confirming that what he says we do, we follow his word and his word alone. If it comes in contrast with the world, I will stand on the word of God because governments will fall. They will come apart. But what has not and will not ever come apart is the word of God. It was there yesterday. It is here today. And guess what? It will be here tomorrow. So I will stand on the word of God and I will guard it. I will defend it with my life. There were martyrs and all, every apostle of the Lord died defending the word of God. Guard the word. Guard his instruction. Luke 12, 1 said, guard against hypocrisy. Guard your witness. Guard your witness. This world has enough fake news. They don't need fake Christians. Guard your witness. 
You can't jump in here on Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, run around with Tom, Dick, and Harry. You better guard your witness. We need a world that needs truth. They have enough lies. The, the word of God says that his truth shall set us free. I'm here to tell you the biggest lie is them saying liberals are free. The lib liberals isn't free. The word is freedom. He is freedom. He is the only true freedom you will ever have. And I'm not knocking anybody. I'm just calling the truth. I am free. I am free. I am free. I am free because of his word. I was in chains. I was bound. I was busted and disgusted. I was 19 curled up on a bathroom floor ready to take my life. And then freedom came. It didn't come as a lie. It wasn't sugar coated. It wasn't candy coated. I got truth and the truth set me free. Next thing Nehemiah teaches us, we better stop entertaining the enemy. Nehemiah 6.3. At this point, Sambalot has come at him verbally. He has threatened him physically. And when he realizes he's not shaking Nehemiah because he is standing firm, he tries to lure him outside of the city gates, sending messages, come, come, come. Some of you are being lured. Some of you, you're hearing me right now. And I'm telling you, you're being lured. The enemy is saying, come, come, come. You better not step out of the covenant gates. You better not leave those gates. They're there to protect you. They're there to fortify you. This, don't do life alone. And it doesn't have to be in this church. It could be, but the body of Christ is there to protect you. And the enemy is saying, come, come, come. And he's luring and he's persuasive. But Nehemiah stood his ground. And he said, I got too much good things to be going on. He basically says, I am carrying on a great project. I love my, my Bible says, I am carrying on a good work. You better get busy doing a good work. You better get busy doing a good work. Because if you're busy doing a good work, you won't have time for the enticements of the enemy. Stop listening to the naysayers. Stop engaging in fights on Facebook. Get busy at the kingdom of God. Rebuilding the gaps and the burnt down doors of the gates. Nehemiah taught us to not quit in the midst of adversity. We normally don't quit when things are great. We quit when things are tough, right? You don't usually say, life is wonderful right now, I'm just going to quit. <laughs> right? That's usually not how it goes. It's when adversity comes. He had some real adversity. One, I need you to understand this was not a building project. This is a rebuild. You're like, well, what's the difference? When you're building something fresh, it is flat ground to work on. It is fresh area to work with. When you're rebuilding, you're dealing with rubble. And there was rubble everywhere. Rubble that wasn't even their mess, somebody else's mess. And some of you have some rubble that wasn't even your choice or your decision, but there's rubble there you got to deal with before you can rebuild. Rubble is dangerous and it's hard. It's not easy work. It would have been laborious, blistering, bloody, sweaty work to rebuild. But he never quit in the process. He was literally surrounded on every side by his enemies. He had Samaria with Sambalot to the north. Tobiah was from Ammon, which is to the east. Geshem is believed to have led the Arab tribes, Moab, Edom, and Arabia to the south. And to the east was the Ashid, I mean, to the west were the Ashidites. Every side of Jerusalem was completely surrounded with people who did not want to see Jerusalem succeed. And he never gave up. Nehemiah 6.15 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Come on. 
52 days. Let me tell you something. When God is in it and he is moving, he ain't wasting no time. Come on, he's going to do a, when, he, when he's already had that season of waiting, and when he says, okay, now is the time to move, you better put your sneakers on because he is going to move. He is not going to waste time. He's going to get the work done in an expedient fashion. He's going to take a three-day journey and turn it into one because he is on a time clock, and he is going to do a quick thing in you. He is going to do a quick thing in your family. He is going to do a quick thing in your mind. He is going to do a quick thing in your emotions. He's going to do a quick thing. 52 days. But see, if we just look at the wall, you would think that was the only thing that was broken. I'm here to tell you that that wall was broken, but what was really broken were the people. But he had to build that wall, protecting them from that spirit of Sambalot. And then chapter 9. In chapter 9, the Israelites confessed their sins. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. That means for you and I, we need to separate ourselves from the world. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and they read the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of a day. We can't even stay for a quarter of an hour. And they spent another quarter confessing and in worshiping the Lord of God. We keep saying we want revival. Revival isn't going to come until we get repentance. And then when we get some repentance, we better go back a few generations and repent some more. And then allow the word of God. Don't be, the Bible, one time, one of the wisest things King David ever said to his son, he goes, don't hasten from the presence of the king. We are always wanting to be somewhere else. We want another season. We haven't even hit um, Halloween, not that I celebrate. It wasn't even over and they had Christmas stuff up. We, hadn't even, we just skipped over Thanksgiving. We can't seem to enjoy where we're at and we can't enjoy where we're at because we haven't even learned to stay in the presence of the king. Don't hasten. These people got it. They said, I, they weren't even sitting for a quarter. They stood for a quarter of a day just listening to the word. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. They were broken in their spirits with every word of God. Like the balm of Gilead was healing every broken part of them. Their families had come out of exile. They had been, they have fought enemies. They had come from a line of people that have fought and fought enemies. And God was saying, let my word wash over you. Let my word heal you. Let my word restore you. Let my word fill 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 you. Word fill you. And then worship broke out. Then worship, three hours, four hours of worship. I'm going to end on this one. One of the things that spoke the most to me about Nehemiah, that is that so connected with what the book I picked up at the same time. You and I need to have a mindset like Nehemiah. We need to be informed. Nehemiah asked, what's going on with Jerusalem? He asked, and then the way he responded, not just like a news update, he reacted, tells me that he was already informed to know what to do with that information. He knew he had to respond because he knew the Torah. He knew the promises of God. How do you know that? Because when he was praying to, Mo to God, he was repeating the promises of Moses to him. He knew the significance of Jerusalem. His eyes were on Jerusalem. Our eyes are not on Jerusalem. We are blind and we're wandering around in the dark and we think we got it all together because we sing some elevation worship. I'm here to tell you the signs are upon us. My whole life I've been hearing that this is the end of days. I distinctly remember. I'm going to take my shoes off. Is that okay? I was in seventh grade. And my Baptist grandmother I talked about earlier 
had us convinced that God was coming back September 7th. Jesus was coming back September 17th, like 1987. Had the pamphlets. My brother had to tear up his Conan Barbarian. My mom went through and ripped up all of his um, comic books, which would have been worth thousands now. And I was telling all my friends at school, Jesus is coming. Okay. And then guess what? Newsflash, he didn't come. I skipped school. I was so embarrassed. So they thought I went in the rapture. And then I got a phone call from my principal. And I answered. And I had to go into the office the next day and, and tell them that it was just a practical joke. And I got in trouble for this practical joke that Jesus was coming back. I felt foolish. You know why I felt foolish? Because my mom and my grandmother were not informed. They didn't know the word enough to know when the signs, when, when the Holocaust was coming, they thought that was the end as they were being tattooed. And, and when, they, when they introduced Social Security, that was the mark of the beast. When, when, the, when the pandemic, um, where 50 million people died from the Spanish flu, guess what? They thought that was the first of the four pests. But if they were informed... If they would have really known the prophecies, they would have said, these are just the rumors. These are just the rumors. I'm here to tell you that we are in the last of last of days. Prophecy is being fulfilled. One very recently that because, let me tell you this, what informs you forms you. And the body of Christ is being more formed by CNN and Fox News than the word of God. And this is why I know this, because when Trump announced, and I'm not promoting Trump, so listen to me. When Trump announced we are moving the, the embassy to Jerusalem, and that meant as a sign that we are acknowledging Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, the whole body of Christ should have jumped for joy. They should have leaped. They should have danced. They should have been like the man on the road to Jericho. Because it meant the, the, the trumpets are coming. It is one fulfilled prophecy. Because every single nation in the UN went against that decision. The Bible prophesies that Jerusalem will be a cornerstone. It will be a heavy sum for the world. Seven nations, ten little middly little nations were the only ones that said, we stand behind you. America. Just one. We were the one of all the leading nations. And instead, what you hear in the news is Trump was racist, Trump is this, Trump is that. When Christians should have realized, oh, snap, that's prophecy. Guess what? That wasn't the first time God used a U.S. president. I believe this nation was founded for a reason, to help usher in the Messiah. Harry S. Truman when in May 14, 1948, again, one of the only nations to stand alone. He, we were actually the first nation to say, we acknowledge Israel as a nation. And we, then when Palestine switched from Great Britain over, the Jews came in and they said, we are reclaiming, filling, refilling Isaiah 66, 8, which says in one day, in one day, the nation will be born. Guess what? Jerusalem was acknowledged as the capital 70 years after that day. There are signs of the time all around us. Revelations 12 has been fulfilled. I'm not going into detail. God tells us in Genesis that um, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars are hung for signs. For signs. The, the, the signs were there. The stars were, were depicted the birth of Christ, guess what? The stars are depicting his return too. I'm not even going into detail, but I can't encourage you. If you want a Nehemiah spirit, if you want to be informed, I suggest you get informed. Open up your eyes. And this, and when I was younger, it made me afraid to know Jesus was coming. Oh my gosh, I can't express the joy. I can't express the joy. I can't, I mean, I have been, where I told Pam, I go for two years, I've almost felt homesick. I've, I'm not depressed, because my life is beautiful, but I feel homesick. 
Now I feel like the, the woman who was waiting at, at, at the airport for her husband to come home from the military. And you know you're just getting so excited that, that, that he's coming through. That's how I feel now. I am so excited. I can't stop talking to my kids about it. I keep telling them, boys, here's a sign. Boys, let me tell you, because one way Nehemiah rebuilt is he rebuilt right in front of the home. And then the next person was right in front of their home. And the next person was right in front of their home. And the next person rebuilt. You better start rebuilding in your home. You better start getting informed. You better start getting educated. You better start getting in the know that he is coming. This generation, Jesus said, this generation will see it. Guess what, guys? We are that generation. We are that generation. And I might be mocked and I might be teased, but I'm going to be at a wedding feast when that trumpet counts. And I ain't even going to care. And I'm going to dance with my king like a bride dances with her groom. And it's going to be a beautiful day. I'm going to have the worship team come up here. We sang this song today for a reason. I want to prick your spirits. I want to heighten you to be informed. I want you to develop a Nehemiah spirit to be praying, to be planning, to stop giving room to the enemy. You got too much at stake to get ready, to get your household ready, to get your kids ready. I'm ready for my king. We're going to worship the Lord on the way out to this song. So stand to your feet. I don't know about you, but I am so, so, so ready. Praise you, Jesus.
shout to the whole world he's we'll sing to the whole world knows king jesus he is faith he is our blessed hope we'll shout to the whole world he's we'll sing to the whole world knows king jesus he Come is, on, he is faith. faithful he Come is on. our blessed Come on, you got a hope We'll shout to the whole world, we'll sing to the whole world, King Jesus is faithful, he is our blessed Lord, we'll shout to the whole world, we'll sing to the whole world, King Jesus is faithful, he is our blessed